Take a seat, please. Okay, so um, I'm going to read the passage, which is Psalm 97, which is on page 603. Psalm 97, at page 603. Then after I've read, uh, Madhush is going to come up and teach us. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You're exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for reading that, John. Let me pray. That's probably a good thing to do. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. God, we rejoice that you rule, that you are for us. And we rejoice that you speak to us, that your rule extends through your word. And so we long this afternoon, as we dwell on it, that we would hear you speak to us, that your spirit would soften our hearts and give us understanding and change us. And help us, Lord, to respond as you call us to, to rejoice, because we get it. We get what God has done and who he is. Amen. Well, it's been really great um, settling into the area, um, getting a better feel for it. Um, if I haven't met you yet, hadn't had the opportunity, my name's Madush. Um, I'm the assistant minister um, here at Trinity Church. And it's been fun exploring, uh, finding things for the kids to do. And people have really tried to make us feel welcome. Uh, one of the things we did this week, the highlight of the week, was a trip out to the theater. Wait for it. For Blippi the Musical. Do you know Blippi? Do you know Blippi? Uh, if you don't, be grateful. He, he's this super high-energy character who dances and sings and uh, totally grabs the attention of kids, right? Apparently, it's educational. Now, happily, it was not quite the ordeal that I expected it to be. And the audience that mattered, the children, absolutely loved it. 
It was brilliant. It was fun and games and lights and energy. Um, it was a thrill for them. And it was really interesting. During the show, Blickby looked out to this uh, theater full of kids and asked them in his uh, really high-pitched musical voice, isn't this the most exciting day ever? And how do you think they responded? Come on, give me some energy. They did not say yes, they yelled, yeah! Something like that. Now the happy part of the story is that my, my kids are a little bit like me. You know, they've, they've got that streak of my personality where they kind of had poker faces when all of this was going on around them. But that evening, at bedtime prayers, one of our kids echoed the sentiment. He prayed, thank you, Father, for the best day ever. Really quickly like that. It was delightful. He loved it. He enjoyed it. It was brilliant. Now, I must confess, for all of the pain that Blippi is in my life, I was a little bit jealous of him. I wish I could get that excited just for me. But I also wish that my excitement was so contagious that a room full of kids would bounce and scream because they caught what I was excited about. I wonder if you've ever been that excited. Have you? What has been the best day ever for you? What gets you bouncing up and down? What fills you with sheer delight? John, John Moody apparently sings loudly when he's watching West Ham United. That's what he told us last week. I still don't believe it. I actually want him to take me to a game sometime. <laughs> right? Have you got a team? Is it some big event in your life? Is it that day that he or she said yes? Is it the day your child was born and they looked at you for the first time? Is it that time where you got that dream job and you walked in and it was everything you hoped it would be? It probably wasn't that, was it? But what was it, right? It's that sentiment, that, that, that raw excitement when you feel it that first time. Well, hang on to that. Hang on to that idea. Hang on to that emotion if you've got it. See, the headline of our psalm, Psalm 97, comes right there in verse 1. You'll, you'll know it from our series. We've, we've hit it again and again. It says, the Lord reigns. He's the king. He rules. He's in control. So what? Well, verse 1, be glad. Rejoice. It comes again in verse 8. God's people rejoice and are glad. And then it's driven him forcefully with a punch in verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord. Praise his holy name. But why should God's rule bring us joy? And I guess this is where we have to be honest with ourselves. I'm sure academically you can think of good reasons why God's rule should bring you joy. But does it really? Does it get you bouncing and excited like, like Blippi does? Especially if, like the Israelites, you had experienced the horrors of war the loss, 
destruction, the trauma, broken bodies and broken souls, if you'd lost everything, if you'd been taken as captives to a foreign land, even those who returned decades later were trying to rebuild their lives from the rubble, facing hardship and insecurity on every side. Drought, crop failures, hostile neighbors, tension at home, high taxes. Life was rough. You can probably relate to some of that at least. And they would have been quite fairly thinking to themselves, be joyful in this God? For all his supposed love for us, it doesn't seem like he's present or that he even cares what's going on in my life. Doubt and despair have stalked God's people right through the ages. I don't know how you're feeling about God's rule today how it maps onto your life. But I suspect that none of us are quite as bouncy as we ought to be. Well, God is not demanding from us a false show of emotion. See, it, it's not like you kind of come to church and you're feeling a little bit run down, and so you come along and you sing some songs and get a bit excited and dance up and down. Okay, I'm, this is not really working that well. Right? I've got to get more excited here. Right? And it fills up and films up. Right? But then it runs down pretty quickly. The fizz disappears. See, Blippi is a bit like this. West Ham United is a bit like this. Your emotions rise and fall with the performance. And even after the high, there's that natural downer. It just doesn't last. God's not asking for that from us. He's not saying, come and pretend to be happy. He's calling us through the psalm to perceive reality as it is. And he's given us this psalm to shepherd our hearts through the process. Although we experience life in a broken world as broken people, our pain and our fears are very present. Through psalms like this, he's moving us so that we truly become deeply at rest we come to experience a settled joyfulness because he rules. And we get what that rule is all about. We experience it in our day-to-day. -day. See, the psalm is calling us to behold and dwell on God who rules, to be captured in awe at what he's like, to look and see him, and as we do that, he moves our hearts to delight because we realize that he, he rules, he exercises all of that authority for our good, for our benefit. Sing it 
singing it in songs like this, to God, to each other, it engages our hearts and our minds. It's what ministers to us. The truth penetrates our aching bodies so that we believe. And because we believe, we sing. We sing and express the joy that is there. So let's look at the psalm. Let's dwell on it. And let's see why this is so. The first few verses lift our eyes to behold this king. Notice how those verses are framed. It encompasses all creation and all people. Verse 1, let the earth be glad. Verse 6, the heavens proclaim it. All creation is testifying to God's rule. And who is it that sees and hears? Verse 1, it's the distant shores, people at the furthest ends of the earth. Verse 6, it's all people everywhere. There's no one who misses the testimony. God's handiwork makes him known. There's no one who can say, I missed it, I didn't see it. It's clear to everyone. And consider what aspect of his rule we're particularly dwelling on. There it is in the second part of verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. We're dwelling particularly on the righteousness of our king. And that language is just drawing us to dwell on God's perfection, his perfection that sets him apart, his moral purity, his holiness. He's the standard of what is good, of what is right, of what is beautiful. And there's something really majestic and captivating about that. We look at him to discern what is good and right. And do you see how God's justice flows out of his righteousness? Because nothing impure can withstand the blazing glory of his presence. Human standards fall far short of God's goodness. But the evil and wickedness we experience matter to God. And that's a relief, isn't it? It means that the corruption, exploitation, injustice all around us will not go unchecked. The weak, the vulnerable, those who are sinned against, taken advantage of, will be given justice. They'll be restored under God's rule. We, we dwelt on this last week as we looked at Psalm 96, and so I'm not going to press it too far. Instead, let's focus on the imagery that's in these verses. Try and visualize it with me. Verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. God is unapproachable in his holiness. He's hidden. And yet, verse 3, fire goes before him, consuming everything around him. All that is impure is burned up. His lightning lights up the world. The earth 
trembles. The mountains, those things that have a real sense of permanence, mountains where people run to for refuge, the mountains melt like wax before him. It's terrifying imagery, isn't it? It's a scary picture. There are real echoes in this text of Exodus chapter 19. See, there, the people of Israel had just escaped from slavery in Egypt in the most dramatic way. The God who had revealed himself to his people as I am, the one who exists in himself from eternity to eternity, he heard his people's cry their back-breaking oppression, the murder of their babies, their suffering and sorrow. And he remembered his promises, which is just another way of saying that God was committed to them. He was true to his word. And so he acts, he intervenes. He confronted the gods of Egypt in this spectacular clash displaying his phenomenal power over all creation, exposing the worthlessness of those so-called gods. And he brought the world's most powerful nation to its knees. Pharaoh, the great king, brought low. That imposing army wiped away like it was a stain on the face of the earth. And the way God's people escape is is through the sea. They cross a sea on dry ground. And God miraculously holding up the waters on either side of them, but with his hands. I can't think of a more spectacular display of God's awesome authority. Can you? Can you imagine living through that? And standing on the other side of the water? What would your impression be of this God? And just a few days later, they're standing there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the same God, I am, says, I'm coming down to meet you. How are you feeling? Imagine yourself standing there. Maybe this imagery will help you if uh, Laura can put it up. You feel the wind pulling at you as you stare up at this mountain. Hear the sounds. You imagine your kids clinging tightly to you, burying their faces in your shoulders because they're terrified. See, this is from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led them out to meet with God. And they stood there at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembles. Can you imagine standing there? It's absolutely terrifying to be in the presence of this God. See, God is coming down on the top of this mountain to meet them. The people at the bottom, but they're terrified. And as his presence descends in all its blazing glory, the people shrink back. 
He's come to invite them into a relationship, but they are threatened with death if they approach. That's really puzzling, right? He's come for them, but if they get too close, they're dead. See, God's righteous rule is delightful because it means that goodness and truth and beauty win in the end. Rightness matters. Wrong will not go unpunished. But it is a terrifying thought. It's terrifying because people everywhere, including us, fall on the wrong side of God's justice. That's why in verse 4 of our psalm, the earth trembles in fear. Of course, the paradox is that right there in verse 1, the earth is called to be glad. Fear and joy. How do these hang together? We'll make sense of it in a little while. But right now, I want you to realize that being blown away in awe at this righteous king, seeing him for who he is, in all of his power and all of his glory, getting your head around his righteousness, that is the seed of your joy. That's where it starts. And so this uh, this psalm is trying to get us to lift our eyes, to sing to one another, to hear these words, to behold our God. Well, if the psalm is calling us to rejoice because the Lord rules, then verse 7 shows us the flip side. See, our tendency is to get preoccupied with the stuff that we can see and taste and touch. We give ourselves to these things. And that's what the Bible calls worship. We wake up at crazy hours of the morning. We bear you know, incredible costs to go and work and labor and serve and study. We pour ourselves into these things. Look at verse 7. It, it's talking about all those who worship images, those who boast in idols. Now, immediately that refers to the nations of the ancient Near East, all around Israel. But it's expressing the inclination of all of our hearts. Yes, some people might have shrines with images to aid their worship. And that's true all around us in London. But I think for most of us, it's much more subtle than that, isn't it? Listen to the New Testament's reflection on this. I'm reading from Romans chapter 1. It says, Since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. And that false worship is expressed in the most ordinary ways. Romans chapter 1 shows us 
It talks about uh, the sexual impurity, greed, the jealousy, the bad-mouthing, the boastfulness that characterizes life. A lack of faithfulness, of love, of mercy in relationships. That's an average day in our lives, isn't it? That's what we like. And you can see how that puts us on the wrong side of God's judgment. Well, look at the consequence there in verse 7. People like this will be put to shame. Now, shame is not a really comfortable word in our culture. It suggests being embarrassed or humiliated in a rather nasty way. I think it's probably more helpful to think about honor, which is ascribed, given to someone, or earned. In my ethnic culture, teachers, for example, are ascribed honor. They're given a special status and shown respect in the community. Children are ascribed some honor depending on their family background, but they can also earn honor by maintaining social norms. Let's bring it closer to home. At the height of COVID, we ascribed honor to those in health professions because of how they served, because of the risks they took. Here, the honor that false worshipers are gathering to themselves is shown to be empty. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny under the light of God's righteousness. Think Pharaoh, great and mighty king of Egypt. Despite all his pomp and his worldly might, what happens in that confrontation with God? It's all stripped away. He's put to shame. And even the gods, just like the gods of Egypt, are ridiculed. They're shown to be worth nothing. That's the destiny of all who see and hear the testimony about God, but reject his rule. And so the psalm is calling us to choose joy. This is a negative example. Don't set yourself up to be put to shame. Choose joy. For Israel, suffering and sorrowful, as they're stumbling through life's hardships. For us, in a world where the godless seem to have it all, but our suffering is a constant companion. God is saying, choose me. The wicked will be put to shame. See me for who I am. Be awed and choose joy. Although the godless are put to shame, God's people hear and rejoice. God's people hear and rejoice. Look at those last few verses from verse 8 and see how God's people are described. In verse 8, it's Zion and the villages of Judah. Now Zion refers to Jerusalem, the city of God. But it's more than just the earthly Jerusalem. It's talking about the new city of God. 
the new city that's going to be characterized by righteousness and justice. Its citizens will be good and right with God. It's the mountain from which God's rule extends to the ends of the earth. It's the place where people from all nations will come to to worship God. This is God's people. In verse 10, they're those who love the Lord, his faithful ones. In verse 11, they're the righteous, the upright in heart. And while those who worship images are put to shame, those who love the Lord receive joy. So let's go back to our paradox from earlier. How does God's justice elicit fear in some and joy in others? How can you say that it makes the earth tremble and yet the earth should be glad? Because the godless are on the receiving end of God's judgment. And yet it is that very same judgment that delivers the righteous. Think of the Exodus rescue again. Israel is delivered precisely as Egypt is judged. And when this psalm is written and heard and sung, Israel's deliverance from her enemies will come true in exactly the same way as their enemies around them who are oppressing them come under God's judgment. You see, as the wicked are judged, the righteous who suffer at their hands are delivered. Do you see how verse 10 puts it? The Lord who reigns, he guards the lives of his faithful, and he delivers them. See, our, our present experience may be painful, but we have the assurance that God exercises his rule for our benefit. It might not seem like it in that moment when you are suffering, when the pain is acute. And yet God is saying here that his rule, his righteousness, means that he exercises all of his power and authority for our good. There's another dimension of this that's helpful to keep in mind. God's people only escape judgment because he treats us as if we are righteous, even when we're not. Do you remember Mount Sinai? God, in his blazing glory, is descending on the mountain, and what are the people doing? They're shrinking back. They're staying far away. They're warned not to approach under pain of death. But that does show God's desire to live among them. And it does show their need to be cleansed so that God can dwell among them. They only escape God's judgment on Egypt in the first place through the Exodus because God offers a way for their sin to be covered over. If God hadn't done that, they could never have escaped in the first place. In Romans... God declares that a righteousness that is by faith is made known in the gospel. How can God's people be called the righteous, the upright in heart? 
Because God offers a righteousness that is by faith. I'll read from uh, chapter 3. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jew, God's people. Gentile, those who worship images. For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. But all are also declared righteous. They are counted right in God's sight, freely, by his grace, through the redemption that came through Jesus. That's probably familiar to most of us, but it's no small thing. The righteous are not good people. They are bad people who have turned in dependence to God. They are people who recognize their weakness, their desperate need, and they fall face flat at the feet of King Jesus. The condition for having the Lord who reigns guard your life and deliver you the condition for him giving you light and joy, it's a dependent heart. It's turning away from giving ourselves to the things that we can see and taste and touch and turning by faith to the king. And here's the hope, that he fills us with joy, with real hope, and that's no hollow thing, right? It's not this fizzy stuff that's gone in a minute. It's not coming back again and again to get excited, to bounce up and down, to get a fix of joy. You know, what we get in Jesus, what we get as we see him for who he is, as we're blown away by all, as we depend on him to be righteous, what we get is a settled restfulness, a confidence that God is for us, a confidence that he's in control and he exercises all of his authority for the benefit of his people. That's joy. That's hopefulness. Friend, if you're not in that place, if you've not come to him with a dependent heart, will you? Can you see what's on offer? Can you see the trade-off that we've been called to? There's a gap between our experience of life, broken people, broken world, hard, and the promise of deliverance. It doesn't look as if Jesus rules right now. It really doesn't. You might be convinced when you come here and sing songs on a Sunday afternoon. But at 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning, it's really not that obvious. He does rule, but it's not obvious. He's promised deliverance in all of its fullness. 
a day when all people everywhere will see Jesus seated, in his, seated on his throne and no one is going to stand in opposition to him. No one. That day is coming. But in the gap between those two, the reality of my Tuesday morning and that day when Jesus is reigning, he's calling us to live by faith. Faith in the reality of God's present rule. The thing that gets us there is a joyful confidence that he really is in control. This psalm, this collection of psalms, is gathered in this way to shepherd us to that reality. We sing it to affirm the truth, and affirming it, we start to believe it. The truth changes us. We live in light of it. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand, we're going to do some singing, we're going to help to encourage each other. We're singing worship to God and praises to God, but we're singing truths to one another as well. We're reminding each other that God really does reign. We're not doing a blippy show, but we are firmly placing our feet on the hope that's before us. Let's pray and sing. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. He rules. Jesus is seated on his throne. God, that is, that is incredible. Give us eyes to see it. Give us faith to live in the light with joyful hearts. Amen.